Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's great to see you. We're going to go ahead and dive into uh, the text today. Uh, again, we are in Luke 15. If you want to go ahead, uh, turn to, type to, swipe to, whatever, Luke 15. You might know that we are in a, a sermon series right now called Live Sent, and this is us trying to get as practical as possible about how and why behind sharing our faith. And today we're talking about the idea of gospel urgency. Gospel urgency. Another way to think about that is seriousness about spreading the gospel, urgency about reaching the lost. And even if you don't know a lot about the Bible, you probably know a little bit about the parable that we're going to look at in Luke 15. It's, it's called the parable of the lost sheep. It's connected to two other parables in Luke 15, the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. They're all kind of trying to say the same thing. And, and, and just also so that we're remembering a framework for looking at a parable today, a parable is a, a, a deep truth tucked inside a story, and because it's a deep truth tucked into a story, where it's easier, it's a little bit easier for us to grasp what it's trying to communicate. So let's look at this parable, if you will, in Luke uh, 15. I'm going to, to read to us, but it's also up on the screen. It says this, Luke 15, 1 through 7. All the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Before we look uh, more closely at Luke 15, I want us to think about the idea of activity or identity and activity. Identity and activity. You know, for better or worse, who you believe you are impacts the things that you do in your life. You know, there are some identities that you're born with, some that you are born into, your family, and then some that you kind of adopt later on in life. I can remember my parents saying this to me. Some of your parents might have said this to you as well. Daniel, remember when you go out tonight that you're a Renstrom. Did your parents ever say that? Probably not Renstrom, but fill in the blank there. You're a Renstrom, so behave like a Renstrom. Or maybe you were born into a family that loves one team, so that means you hate another team, right? Some of you know what that's like. If you think about it, there are some identities that when we take them on, it means that they cancel out other identities. So whenever you became wife, it cancels out the opportunity to be called girlfriend, right? If some of you were to become Olympic athlete, it cancels out the opportunity to be into fast food, right? <laughs> You're not going to do that anymore. So why talk about that? Well, I, here's what I want us to see. That in Luke 15, I want us to see the identity of Jesus impacted the activity of Jesus. You might even want to write that down. In Luke 15, the identity of Jesus impacted the activity of Jesus 
And it's not just in this passage. Just think about Luke 19, verse 10. You've probably heard this verse before. Jesus says this, that the Son of Man has come into the world to seek and save the lost. Think about that. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying he knows he's the Son of Man, the only one who's come from the Father, who can seek and save the lost. So what Jesus believed about himself impacted his behavior, right? And here's why that matters. Now, I don't think that the best way for urgency to grow in all of our hearts today is by hyper-focusing on urgency. I think that the best way for that to happen is by looking at what fuels urgency. What fuels urgency to get the gospel to the lost? And I think Luke 15 shows us that the identity of Jesus is what fueled his activity of urgency. I think that's what Luke 15 is showing us. His urgency to reach the lost was fueled from his identity. So first, a couple fill in the blanks for you here, okay? Jesus came to seek the lost. That's on the screen. That's your first fill in the, fill in the blank. So verse one introduces us to this group of people, the tax collectors and the sinners. And I want us to see a couple of things about them. This is another fill in the blank for you, that the tax collectors, the sinners, and the tax collectors are needy. They're needy. So how do we know that? Well, think about the story that Pastor Matt talked about last week with Levi, the tax collector, who Jesus called. What happens? Jesus calls him, and immediately, what does he do? He leaves everything, he follows Jesus, and then what's the next thing that he does? He throws a party, right? And who does he invite to the party that he's throwing? He's inviting all the people that he knows, other tax collectors. Now, I want us to just remember this, that tax collectors in the Bible are seen as greedy, as deceptive They didn't have a great reputation. So when the Pharisees see Jesus hanging out with these these tax collectors, with the the sinners, what do they say? They They look at the disciples and they say, why is Jesus hanging out with them? So this is what Jesus says back to them. It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, just think about how the sick were dealt with in that day. If you had leprosy, what did they do? They didn't say, just stay here and we'll try to get you better. They said, go away. Get outside the city. We don't want you around the healthy people. So when Jesus says, spiritually speaking, I came for the needy, the outcast, The ones that seem to be a drain on resources, those are the ones that I came for to help. What he's saying is, I'm not allergic to need. I'm not repulsed by need. But also I want you to notice this, the posture that the sinners and tax collectors have towards Jesus. This is the next fill in the blank here. The sinners, the tax collectors draw near and listen to Jesus. The sinners and the tax collectors draw near and they listen to Jesus. You know, like it's a, like a moth to a light. They knew there's something here that I need. You know, they, they probably never felt welcome to approach anyone like Jesus. I mean, you can even just think about this in the title that the tax collectors had for them, right? Their title for them was sinner. That was not the title they had for themselves, right? <laughs> They didn't put that on their business card, right? I'm, I'm a sinner. 
That was the title that the tax collectors, uh, that the Pharisees had for them. That's what they called those people. But when they looked at Jesus, they knew there's something different, that we can approach Jesus. He wants us to come near him. You know, friends, I, I also, though, don't want us to miss the second part of the description here. What does it say? They didn't just come close to Jesus. They listened to Jesus. Do you see that? They listened to Jesus. You know, lots of people find Jesus compelling, but not everybody listens to Jesus. I want you to look back at the final words of Luke 14. If you look at your Bible, the final words of Luke 14 say this. Jesus is talking in that whole chapter about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following him. And he says this, the very last words, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Which means lots of people can hear, but not everybody is listening. Lots of people are Jesus adjacent, right? But not everybody is a fully devoted follower of Jesus. So it's not a coincidence that in the very next verse, 15 verse 1, the very next verse, the description of the sinners and the tax collectors is what? That they were listening to Jesus. It's the exact same word, exact same word in the Greek used in that last verse and in the first verse of 15. They were listening to Jesus. You know, if you're a parent or a teacher or a coach, or if you've ever had to lead any group of people ever, then you know what it's like for people to hear you but not listen to you, right? (laughs) Uh, More than a few times I've gone into a uh, coffee shop I've been waiting on my drink and I I kind of hear them say, Donald, Donald. And I just kind of nervously look around, you know, and I go, Daniel, right? (laughs) They, They might've been hearing me, but they weren't listening to what I said. They didn't listen to my name. You know, listening means this. You might wanna write down a couple of these descriptions. Listening means to take something in to consider it. Listening means working as hard as we can to take away any filter we might have that would keep us from fully grasping what's being said and why it matters. Now I want us to pause over this idea for just a moment. I want us just to think about it. You know, if you're a Christian, The way that you came to Christ is the way that you continue with Christ. And the way that you came to Christ was by approaching him and listening to his words. And so that means a Christian who has no time, who makes no time for drawing near to God and listening to him through his word, through prayer, that Christian is stunting their growth. That Christian is willingly starving themselves when there's a feast in front of them. But listen, if if you're not a Christian, I want you also to, to think about this. I want you to consider the posture of the tax collectors and the sinners. They were reminded often by the Pharisees, you don't belong here. They were reminded that all the time. But in spite of the Pharisees' disdain, they came to Jesus They listen to Jesus. You know, there's a really good chance that some of you here today have been hurt by someone in the past in the name of Jesus, in the name of religion, 
And you might be right now stiff-arming Jesus because of something that they did to you in the past. And can I just encourage you to listen and look at what the tax collectors and the Pharisees did. In spite of that, they came close to Jesus. They listened to Jesus. I want to encourage you to do the same thing. You know, in contrast to the tax collectors and the sinners, look at what the Pharisees are doing. Look down at your Bible. What are the Pharisees doing? They're complaining, right? They're grumbling. It says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You, you could just almost sense the snarl on their face as they're saying that, right? He eats with sinners. He hangs out with them. You know, their assumption was this. First, you have to clean up your life, and then you can come to Jesus. Their assumption was that they don't deserve compassion at all. It's not right for Jesus to hang out with them because of what they've done in their past. You know, before you and I get all judgy towards the Pharisees for acting like that, thinking like that, saying things like that, I want us to consider that some of us might have an us-them mentality when it comes to whether or not somebody deserves to approach and listen to Jesus. And so I want to unpack this by asking you this question, just kind of think about this for a little bit. You know, say Jesus lived on 119, so he's got a little ranch house maybe over here on 119 and and say one evening you went over and you visited Jesus and as you're walking up to the stairs there one evening his dinner guest is leaving and as you as you're walking up you see his dinner guest and and, and it's a person who it's a kid at your school who's been the ringleader for mocking and bullying Christians or it's an LGBTQ activist who has successfully lobbied to change the curriculum at your kid's school. Or it's a business person that has used all of their underhanded connections to be able to bulldoze a housing project so that they could build condos. Or it's somebody that you know is a child abuser and they've hurt countless people. It's your boss who hates how open you are about your faith at work and who has passed you over for a job promotion over and over again. It's a drug dealer and a pimp who has exploited somebody that you love. Now listen, I want to be really clear here. I am not talking about whether or not someone deserves consequences for actions. What I'm wondering is if you would look at Jesus in that moment as you walk up to the stairs and you say, why are you hanging out with them? Why are you spending time with them? They have work to do. Then they can spend time with you. The label that the Pharisees gave these people was outsider, sinner, filthy, undeserving to even come close to, to Jesus. But listen, friends, this is it right here. The label that Jesus gave them was needy, listener, seeker, someone worthy of giving his attention to. So first, Jesus came to seek the lost. Second, Jesus throws a party when sinners repent and the lost are found. Jesus throws a party 
when sinners repent and the lost are found. So to address and confront these grumbling Pharisees, Jesus tells them this parable, this story. And I think it can be really easy for us to draw the wrong conclusion about what Jesus is saying in this parable. You know, we might think Jesus is saying something like this. You might think Jesus is saying something like, I'm the type of shepherd who will sacrifice and do what no other shepherd would do. I'm willing to sacrifice the well-being of the 99 and go after the one. But I think Jesus is saying more than just that. I want you to listen to what it says. Go back in your Bibles. Look down at your Bible. Verse 4. What does he say there? What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? What's he saying? Friends, think about it. What's he saying here? All of you would do the same thing. Every one of you Pharisees would do the exact same thing. Why? Because it's a loss of property. Because it's a loss of finances. Jesus knows they care about the balance sheet. I don't think though, I don't think that this parable is about sacrifice. I think that this parable is about value. What's Jesus saying to them? He's saying, you would do that for an animal, but you wouldn't do it for someone made in my image. How little do you have to think of somebody to deny them a good that you would give to an animal? You're, you're treating them, you would be treating them in a subhuman way. Friends, I think that Jesus is exposing the root of the hatred of the Pharisees. In the eyes of the Pharisees, you might even want to write this down. This is something to think about. In the eyes of the Pharisees, the sinners and the tax collectors have no worth. They weren't even important enough to go after. They had no value in their eyes. One more thing I want us to see about this section is the progression of the parable. So I want to ask you this question. Does the shepherd pursue the sheep once the sheep admits it's lost? Does the shepherd pursue the sheep once the sheep admits that it's lost, right? Like it, it kind of hand, holds up his hand? No. The shepherd begins the pursuit and then the, she, the sheep repents. The love of the shepherd compels him. He wants to remove this sheep from this dangerous situation. Parents, you know what this is like. If it wasn't for your urgency, for your anxiety, when your kids get lost at Target, most of them would have to just grow up in the toy aisle at Target, right? They're not looking for you. When they get lost at the toy aisle, they are content, right? <laughs> Friends, this is one of the best pictures of our salvation in the Bible. Long before we could even articulate the word help, Jesus came after us. He left heaven. He ran after us at the cost of his own life. He rescued us. But remember, remember this. Just being close to Jesus doesn't mean you're listening to him. And just being lost doesn't mean that you repent and long to be found. Look at what, it's, look at what it says in verse 7. Look again at your Bible. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who, look at that, repents 
than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. You know, just a few verses later in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, you probably know this really well, there's a wonderful example of what repentance looks like. Think about what, what happens there. That the prodigal son, he still smells like pig slop he's been eating, right? And he comes back to the father and he says, I've sinned in heaven and against you. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. What's he saying in that moment? He's saying, I have vertically sinned against God and horizontally, I've sinned against you. I wanna have fellowship with you again. That's what it means to repent. You know, it's easy for a lot of us to believe that uh, becoming a Christian means maybe that you uh, adopt a new political party. Or maybe you think it, it's, uh, the implications are, I've got to spend my Sundays a certain way. Or now I've got to use my money a certain way. But friends, so, some of those things might change if you become a Christian. But that is not primary. The primary thing that happens when you become a Christian is that you say this, whatever system I had in place to earn my own righteousness, I'm setting it aside. I could never earn, I could never give enough money. money. I could never do enough good things. None of those things are gonna lead me to God, give me the righteousness I need. I'm turning away from those things and I'm turning to Jesus. Jesus died in my place for the sins that I deserve to die for. He rose again in victory over sin and death and now he offers me life, life now, life forever. Friends, that's what it means to follow Christ. And some of you may have never heard of that, thought about that, and if you would like to talk to somebody more about it, I would love to encourage you after our gathering to head down the center aisle to the room that we call the connection point and talk to someone there about what that means. I want us to look at one more step that happens in the progression of this parable and it's the response of the shepherd. That's not a fill in the blank, but you might just wanna write that down because it's something really important to think about, the response of the shepherd. So once he finds the sheep, he has joy. He's got so much joy. Look down at your Bible, starting in verse five. Look at all the ways that the word joy is used. Joyfully, do you see that? Joyfully, he rejoices. There's more joy in heaven three times in three verses, over and over again. And then look at what the shepherd does. He puts the sheep on his shoulder. He calls all of his friends, everybody around. He, he invites them to celebrate with him. What's he saying? Verse six, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. Friends, this is the very center of the target of this parable. Think about this. The very center of the target of this parable is Jesus loves when sinners repent. He loves it so much that he throws a party. It's the thing he wants to talk about. It's the thing he wants to celebrate the most. And friends, I wonder though, if some of you really believe that. Like you really believe deep in your heart that, that God overflows with this much joy when sinners repent. Our, our family has a dog named Durham, and Durham has two parts to his brain. Um, one part of his brain loves to be obedient. He loves to do what we ask him to do. The other part of his brain loves uh, chipmunks and squirrels. And 
Most of the time, those two parts of his brain don't uh, compete, but a couple of months ago, it did, and uh, Durham was able to break free from the suffocating confines of our home that has zero chipmunks and squirrels. And he was able to get out outside, and he got into the, the woods behind our house. And so I, I went after him. I was calling him, I was begging, I was pleading, I was chasing, and finally I caught up with him. And, uh, and friends, I want you to know that unlike Jesus, I did not put Durham on my shoulders. <laughs> I did not call my friends and family and say, rejoice with me, friends. I have found my lost Durham. <laughs> I didn't say any of that. I wonder if some of you maybe see the attitude of Jesus towards his rescuing in a similar way. Maybe you think of, of Jesus as just grinding his teeth, stomping his foot, annoyed at the inconvenience that once again he's got to go out on this search and rescue mission once again. Friends, if you do believe something like that, that lie, can I encourage you to be convinced by the word today? When sinners repent, when idol worshipers turn to the true and living God, the Bible tells us that Jesus, that God the Father, God the Spirit is full of joy. He's filled up with joy. So, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He throws a party when sinners repent, the lost are found. Final thing, Jesus calls us to love what he loves and find joy in what brings him joy. Jesus calls us to love what he loves and find joy in what brings him joy. You know, I started by talking about the connection between identity and activity, and I wanted us to see that what Jesus believed about himself and others impacted his behavior. But I think Jesus has been doing more than just talking about himself in this parable. I think Jesus has actually been exposing the Pharisees. He's exposing the identity of the Pharisees. I want you to look at verse seven. Look down at your Bibles. Verse seven, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people, look at this guys, who don't need repentance. Now, here's a question for us. Is it true that they did not need to repent? No. Jesus is saying to them that in their eyes, they didn't think they needed to repent of anything. You know, when the lost, are found, when the lost think that they are found, they have no use for a rescuer, right? When the lost think that they're found, they have no use for a rescuer. Friends, the Pharisees didn't think they needed to repent of anything, so they had zero compassion for anyone who did. They didn't think they were lost. They certainly didn't think that they needed to be found. And friends, this is one of the most important things that we can pick up from this passage. If your identity is one who needed to be rescued, then you're going to rejoice when others are rescued as well. Let me just say that one more time. If your identity is one who needed to be rescued, then you're going to rejoice. You're going to be full of joy 
when others are rescued as well. Friends, Jesus is inviting us today, right now, as we read this passage, to see people the way that he sees them. To delight in what brings him delight, the rescue of the lost. It's an urgency that overflows from joy. It's a gravity that's overflowing from gladness. But here's the thing that we all know. I've, I've been talking about this. But here's the thing that we all know. That all, sometimes our activity doesn't perfectly line up with our identity or say it the other way. Sometimes we do things outside of our identity, what we want to do. If you've been a Christian for very long, you know this is true. You are a jumble of all kinds of things. You do things that you love and you do things that you hate. We're all over the place. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you're like a stock market graph, right? You're kind of going up and down and up and down and up and down. But you're always heading towards Christ-likeness. Always heading that direction. So here's a question many of us want to know, and it's the next fill in the blank, and it's the thing I want us to think about. And even if you can, a lot of you have one of these journals. We've been giving them away. We've been talking about journal entries. I think this would make a great journal entry because I'm going to give you two things that I think answer this question, and it's how can I more passionately love what Jesus loves and rejoice in what brings him joy? I'm going to give you two things but I think you could write down this question and come up with so many more. I think it's worthy of your meditation, your thought. So, a couple things about that. First is following your treasure will lead you to what you love. Following your treasure will lead you to what you love. Matthew chapter 6, you know these words from Jesus. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, your treasure is made up of things that are really dear to you. And I think Jesus is probably talking about money in that passage, but I also think he's talking about way more than just money. You know, sometimes you can find your treasure in a couple of different ways. One of them is by looking at the things that occupy the majority of your discretionary time. What occupies the majority of your discretionary time? You know, if you were to say to me, I value connecting with my friends, looking, them at, the, looking at them in the eyes, asking them questions. If you say that to me, if you say that, I value that. But when your weekly stats from your iPhone come to you, probably on Sunday here in a few minutes, <laughs> when your weekly stats come to you and what you see is that you have actually spent the majority of your discretionary time just scrolling, it may be that you actually find your phone to be a more important treasure than your friends. Another way that you can find your treasure is by looking at the things that you're most excited about. I wanna, uh, th this past summer, I went uh, to Atlanta with my daughters, my three girls, to go see a concert, and I, I should, preface this story by telling you, I was definitely the oldest person at this, con at this concert by like 10 years. Um, and so it's probably just 40-year-old Daniel kind of uh, being grumpy here, like get off my lawn, Daniel. But um, this is what happened. At the concert, I could not believe that, uh, that this is the way that you kind of operate in concerts now. Everybody the entire time had their phone up and they were recording the entire concert. The entire, there are hundreds of these little kids doing this the entire time. Now, why were they doing that? They wanted to share their treasure. 
They wanted to share it on Instagram, on TikTok. They wanted to share their treasure. You know, if you pay attention to the things that you spend your money on, spend your time on, overflow with joy over, talk about on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever it is, that will lead you to the thing that you really treasure the most. And here's the thing, if you look at those things and you see that there is a lack of joy about gospel urgency, about getting the gospel out to the lost, it's probably because other things are crowding it out right now. But also, here's the hope for Christians. Number two, fellowship with Jesus, with Jesus will lead you to love what he loves. This is the hope for every Christian. Fellowship with Jesus will lead you to love what he loves. You know, when I say fellowship with Jesus, what I mean by that is spending time with him in his word and in prayer, corporately, privately. That's the way that God grows gospel joy, gospel urgency to get the, the gospel to the lost. That's the way that God does that in our hearts. You know, I started by saying, I don't want us to focus on urgency so that we get more urgent about the gospel. But here's what we do. We focus on Jesus. We spend time with Jesus. We fellowship with Jesus. And when we do that, what comes from that is this tree of Christ-likeness in our lives. And one of the branches of that is gospel urgency in our lives. It's going to grow. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke that we're looking at today, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And uh, something that happens in the book of Acts is this beautiful connection between prayer and mission, or to use the, the terms that we're using today, fellowship with Jesus and gospel urgency. There's a beautiful connection of those two things put together in Acts chapter four. I wanna read this to you in, uh, in just a moment, but this, this example is when these Christians are being persecuted and instead of withdrawing or complaining, what they do is they pray. They spend time in prayer. Think about that. They spend time in fellowship with God and look at the outcome of their prayer. It says this, I think it's up on the screen. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Friends, think about this. If making gospel urgency for reaching the lost grow in our hearts, if it was only up to us, we would fail miserably all the time. But praise God, it's not. As we fellowship with Jesus, please get this. As we fellowship with Jesus, the Spirit does this wonderful work of filling up our hearts to love what Jesus loves and rejoice in the things that, that bring him joy. 